Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Before the Civil War, Southern slaveholders tried to justify their labor system by comparing the lives of the enslaved to the lot of Northern wage workers. They called them mudsills, who were doomed forever to make up the lowest rung of society. The defenders of free labor countered that the North's economy gave everyone an unfettered start and a fair chance in the race of life, as Lincoln said. That was the rhetoric, but the reality was far different, according to Professor Brian P. Lusky. He is the author of Men is Cheap, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor in Civil War America. We'll talk with Professor Lusky tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Fullick. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Pandemic Annex on Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not representing East Carolina University, although I work there during the day. My guest, likewise, will speak only for himself, not any other place. Well, it is the, (coughs) excuse me, that's not a dry COVID cough, that's just a the cough from uh, whatever I was just drinking there. Uh, it's May 13th of 2020. We are sheltering in place. I've been out of the home to go for long walks and three times to the grocery store in the last four weeks. So uh, getting a little bit 
cloistered here, but enjoying the chance to talk to you for an hour and uh, venture back into the 19th century. As we all, I hope everywhere you are doing well and uh, maintaining safe practices and keeping uh, uh, keeping the curve as flat as we possibly can, so that the virus will eventually be reduced and we can resume uh, a more normal life. East Carolina University continues planning to open in the fall with some kind of on-campus courses. We learned in the past week here that one thing the campus is definitely going to do is switch to a block scheduling system. Instead of a 14-week fall semester, we will have two seven-and-a-half or eight-week blocks with only two courses instead of four in each of these blocks. It will be uh, a grueling experience. If my experience in teaching summers is anything like that, uh, in summer term, we only have five weeks. So you pack a whole 14-week course into five weeks. It means you meet every day. There are no many fewer weekends for students to catch up. If you miss one day, you fall way behind. And uh, the eight-week or seven-and-a-half-week fall semester promises to have the same kind of difficulties, plus every course has to be completely rewritten because lectures that fit into a beautiful 75-minute period or 50-minute period, depending how many times a week you're teaching, uh, now the arc of the story, the introduction, the students are gazing with bated breath, what will he say next, Uh, then the Uh, development, the climax, the denouement. Uh, These are all in my dreams, of course. The students are sitting there glancing at their phones and doing other things. But the lectures do have shape, and they can't just simply be repackaged into a different length of time without rewriting them. So uh, it'll be a busy summer. Meanwhile, here on campus this past week uh, and this week that's ongoing now, I've been attending an online teaching workshop which has been rich with irony. Uh, This morning, for example, we had a lecture on how to make things easy, or a presentation, I should say, an online presentation, how to make things easy to find in uh, your Canvas course design. Canvas is a a learning system, an online learning system that we'll be using in the fall. So we, it was in the form of a Canvas course presented to us how to find, uh, how to make your Canvas course easy to maneuver in. And the first five minutes were spent with people asking the presenter, where are the documents that were supposed to be here from yesterday? Uh, Eventually, we found them all. But if the professional presenter who says, here's how you make things easy to find, uh, could not make them easy to find for us, it makes me feel I have carte blanche to do whatever I want uh, this fall and not feel bad about it. But we'll see how that goes. Hopefully this fall, we will be resuming Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours, October 9 to 17. Although with the block schedule now, that means I'll miss a ton of class. I don't know how that's going to work. We'll figure it out. Uh, Hope you can go on that. And uh, you can find out what else is going on by always keeping tuned to www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page, where 
Mark Gaffney keeps us up to date. And there you'll find next week on May 20th, we'll be welcoming back a friend of the show, Timothy B. Smith. His new book is called The Union Assaults at Vicksburg, Grant Attacks Pemberton, May 17 to 22, 1863. And I'll give you the rundown right quick here the rest of the uh, season of the spring season here of 2020. Uh, on May 27, Zachary Fry, Republic in the Ranks, that's four words, Republic in the Ranks, Loyalty and Dissent in the Army of the Potomac. On the 3rd of June, uh, Christopher Klein, When the Irish Invaded Canada, the Incredible True Story of the Civil War Veterans Who Fought for Ireland's Freedom. On June 10th, another returning friend of the show, Matt Gallman, who co-edited uh, a book that we talked about last year with Gary Gallagher, actually co-edited two books, and we'll talk about the other one. We had Gary on last year, we'll have Matt on this year, to talk about Lens of War, exploring iconic photographs of the Civil War. Then a book I've been anxious to read, and looking forward to it, on June 17th. Not that that's not true of the others, uh, an engineering professor from Duke University, Rachel Lance, has written a book about what actually sank the Hunley, In the Waves, My Quest to Solve the Mystery of a Civil War Submarine. And uh, that promises to be very interesting. And we'll finish up with Kenneth R. Rutherford, uh, his book, America's Buried History, Landmines in the Civil War. Dr. Rutherford is somebody with a uh, deep personal involvement with the topic, and uh, it'll be interesting to have him on. So lots coming up. Tonight, our topic is uh, the Civil War economy in the North. The book we'll be discussing is called Men is Cheap, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor in Civil War America, and it is written by Professor Brian P. Lusky. Dr. Lusky, are you there? I am. Thanks for having Welcome. me on, Jerry. Oh, Brian, it's good to have you on. I'm, I'm delighted to make this connection. I, we must have met at at, at one of the uh, uh, Gettysburg uh, Institutes. I, they, they go by with so many people. Uh, sure, I believe we did. That uh, and listeners will recognize your name as also uh, part of the name of, of Dr. Ashley Whitehead Lusky, the assistant director of Civil War Institute. Uh, to whom you are that now related correct. by marriage, I believe. That's right. So how, yeah. uh, how is the family? We're, we're doing okay. Um, I'm, I'm just hoping that you and your listeners can't hear my kids uh, screaming and crying right now <laughs> as they get ready for bed. <laughs> well, so that's it, kind of a that, nightly thing for us. Ab- absolutely. It is that time of... Uh, uh, that time of day, I, I remember well from when mine were Indeed. little, right, starting to get dark and time to get everybody wrangled and and brushed right. and everything else and the stories read and so on. Um, the dust jacket points out that you teach at West Virginia University, but uh, right. your family is in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, where, where Ashley helps yeah. run the Civil War Institute. How does that work for you guys? I, I I do a lot of driving. <laughs> how, um, how long so is it's a, it's a it's a it's a three hour drive, um, and so mm-hmm. I I stay out there while I teach, and so uh, then come back home after that's after that's done, 
Um, so um, it's it's a challenge, but it's really rewarding for both of us to have um, to have jobs at these two places, um, and and we feel pretty fortunate to to have those jobs. Well, it certainly is. Given the economy of academia today, it, it's it's tough for any uh, two professor family to make things work uh, to find things at least within three hours, at least you're in driving distance, not doing a cross country right. thing. Uh, no, so I've, that, that yes, is, I've heard, I've heard much, much worse commuting stories than mine. Wow. So the, uh, well, let me ask another question on that. What is it like having another civil war historian in the house? Do you, is there any peace? <laughs> of course. I, I think it's, um, I think it's wonderful to have, um, someone who's, uh, you know, whose expertise can, you know, uh, feed into, you know, contributing to my own work and, and vice versa. I think we help, uh, help each other, uh, think through some, some historical questions. And it's, it's fun just to share, um, share that interest. And I, I can tell your listeners that you're opening, um, uh, 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 song uh, Ashokan Farewell is the is the mm-hmm. song we uh, that Ashley walked down the aisle to. So we, we, uh, uh, we've, we've um, uh, been brought together by a, a common interest, and I think that's it, it's it's uh, it's a great thing. Well, well, that that is is a great story, and, and I hope that all continues to go as well as it has. Yeah. No, yeah. Normally, a, a first question I often ask uh, a guest on the show is, what brought you to your topic? But I want to ask a different question this week. When I start writing an introduction to the show before the the opening music, often I can write that just by looking at the dust jacket. I know this is going to be a book about Gettysburg or Vicksburg, and I can write something. Uh, this week, I wrote something, and then I read most much of the book and I rewrote it and then by the time I finished the book I rewrote it a third time uh, what is the book about it's a good question um, and I, I think that um, I mean maybe maybe your your original question is a good place to start I mean I'm a I'm a historian of the economy in the 19th century mm-hmm. first and foremost that's where I've done my uh my the most most of my work um my first book was about young men who clerked for businesses in 19th century cities and so i started um researching um an institution in the north in the antebellum period pre-civil war period called the intelligence office and um as i talk about in my book the intelligence office was lingo for an employment agency where um where workers and employers um, looked for information. That's the, the reference to intelligence um, and uh, a particular form of information, information about the labor market in the North, wage labor market, especially in large cities where uh, workers and employers didn't necessarily know each other. Um, what brought me um, into uh, the study of the Civil War is realizing that this um, way of brokering um, labor market transactions where some people um, paid a fee to an intelligence office proprietor for that information to connect them uh, with uh, someone to work for them, um, that those transactions were um, really fundamental to understand how the labor market worked 
especially in cities. Um, and it, it was an institution that was widely hated because people who went there uh, felt like they were cheated. Either the workers felt they didn't get a job or didn't get a job fast enough, and employers um, believed that they weren't always getting the worker that was best suited for the job they wanted them to do. Um, and so they, they, they debated the intelligence office. It was a, it was a, it was a problem for um, uh, in American culture. But I also found that uh, this intelligence office um, became a model for a lot of the brokering or recruiting of laborers during the war. So that's, that runs the gamut from uh, domestic servants to um, substitutes, which I talk uh, at some length about uh, in the war, uh, the hiring of, of men to serve uh, in the place of drafted men. And so my, my book is about the work of intelligence office keepers or recruiters of labor, and uh, the significant proportion of the northern population um, who saw that the best way to be independent in the economy was um, not just to work for wages, um, but on the flip side, to be able to hire the workers of your choice. And so I think uh, in, in um, talking about the experience of those brokers and the, the broader cultural narratives about um, what this war was about and, and, the, and the Northerners, as you said in your, your intro, um, being called mud-filled by the Southern slaveholders, but Northerners wanting to contest the power of uh, wealthy uh, slaveholders who were the, 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 the richest capitalists of their day. Uh, so in some ways, you could see the war, uh, especially from the writing of soldiers and officers and a great many people in, in the northern home front, um, as seeing this as, a, as an opportunity to be um, more, more economically powerful themselves. So that's um, maybe a longer answer than you wanted, but that's what the book is about. And we're going to take a short break now. We'll come right back, talk more with Brian P. Lusky, author of Men is Cheap, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor in Civil War America. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you. It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific for Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Brian P. Lusky, author of Men is Cheap, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor in Civil War America. We talked in the first segment about how the one of the linchpins of the free labor system in the North before the Civil War is the Intelligence Office, which we would call, I guess, an employment agency today, Uh where we're laborers looking for jobs and, and employers looking for workers found each other. But Brian, you said these places were, were uh, widely disliked. They were considered uh, almost inherently fraudulent. I'm curious about that. I mean, the, the employment broker is making money as a middleman for having knowledge of the market. Was it just the resentment that someone's making money without actually making something like a pair of shoes that, that people resented, or, or were they just always dishonest? What 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 made them so perceived so negatively? Right, that's a good question. Surely, surely you're right. Um, they were among the the non-producing class they were um they were making making money but not doing any productive labor and in fact uh as a middleman uh they joined a um uh in the in the public's mind uh, a group of people whether they be clerks or brokers in a variety of different ways as interposing themselves in uh, what a lot of Northerners thought was a quote-unquote harmony of interests between employers and employees um, and 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 so they they complicated Northerners' understanding of their their labor system, and and they in some ways confronted uh, the ideology of free labor, which talked about um, the, the the rise of workers, as you said in your open. Um, that that as Lincoln said, no no wage worker is fixed to his place; he can save his his wages and become independent, and maybe even hire. Um, other 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 workers who themselves are trying to rise up. Uh, certainly, that that happened in some cases. Indeed, Lincoln's. Um, uh, but it, it increasingly, as the debates about intelligence offices um, went on in the antebellum period, it became clear that in fact um, the, the 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 employer and the worker um, did not have the same interest, um, and the the intelligence office keeper exacerbated that that tension. Um, and and this is this is not to um, you know I, I, I haven't even talked about the even clearer frauds that intelligence office keepers um, uh, perpetrated on people uh, stealing money, saying they're going to find somebody a job and not um, uh, not uh, not actually doing so, and then sending uh, they in some ways uh, some instances sent um, sent young women who were looking for jobs as domestic servants to houses of prostitution. Um, and there are a lot of lot of narratives about that in northern newspapers. Um, it, it it was hard for people to go into these offices and think to themselves, "Well, um, uh, I'm not going to be cheated here." So maybe I'm trying to think if there's anything analogous in 
21st century economy. I suppose maybe a pawn shop is a place where you tend to be suspicious. Yeah, potentially uh, uh, check cashing uh, places. Um, I think, you know, if you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of preying on the most vulnerable. So you mentioned Lincoln and his rise. He's the exemplar of the, the free labor system who comes from uh, a background of, of no capital and, and becomes a, a lawyer. Now, one thing that strikes me is Lincoln, as a lawyer, he's also part of the non-producing class, but that's perfectly okay. Uh, I mean, lawyers always have you know, some negative baggage attached, but uh, just because someone's a middleman, they don't produce anything, is that alone enough to, to not respect them? I think you're exactly right. The difference being that a, that um, the, the law was a profession, and I think that set um, people in the professions at a higher status um, than um, than other these other middlemen I'm I'm talking about. These intelligence offices were usually in the basement, um, you know, below ground level on on city streets, and so they're kind of the, the, the level of respect did put them on a par with with uh, institutions like like and businesses like pawn shops uh, that that you mentioned even at the time. Um, so I think there's you know while while lawyers might not be trusted all the time, uh, certainly mm-hmm. their uh, their position in society is much higher than the than the labor brokers I'm I'm talking about. Now, another thing about Lincoln. Uh, you cited you express, I would say, a skepticism for the the free labor theory that, that you suggest it's breaking down or it's not working. Uh, indeed, as as the title says, you're exposing the frauds of free labor in Civil War America. Uh, I have always thought that had Lincoln lived into the post-war era, he would have been sorely challenged to update his economic theory. Because while he could legitimately say one, you know, you you work for someone else this year, save up enough money. Next year you work for yourself. The year after that you own your own farm or business and hire someone to work for you, and the cycle continues. You can believe that in the 1850s theoretically. By the 1870s, 1880s, if you're working for Andrew Carnegie, you can't imagine I'll just save up and open my own steel mill next year. Uh, that's not going to happen. Right. You're going to work in that steel mill your whole life, and you can't be blind to that reality. Uh, right. So Lincoln I, I had a hard time. But but is that true in the 1850s already? Is he already deluded? Well, that's it's a good question. And, and like any you know any um, set of beliefs, you know, I guess what I what I have to say is most every white northerner believed that they could they could rise. In in mm-hmm. uh, um, um, in society, they believed in free labor ideology, even as they came to see Lincoln's um, three step process as being um, uh, not not empty, but uh, that it was that it was missing something that was key. Uh, Lincoln uh, talked about this middle space of being independent of other people's capital and other people's labor. Um, and um, that that suggested to a lot of people that that was that that was maybe not the case. That what they needed to become totally independent was to was to have the capital to hire workers. 
uh, that that set them apart, that there was really no being independent of other people's labor and other people's capital. Uh, there were no um, uh, subsistence farmers that were apart from the marketplace. Everybody had uh, was dependent on that market for, for some uh, for some um, uh, some money or some worker, right? Um, and I, I think that's true for every producer and consumer in that economy. And so I think that I think that a lot of uh, I can see this in the writing of soldiers and others. Um, they see um, some weakness in the in Lincoln's description of that upward rise. And I agree with you that uh, it, the great what if if Lincoln uh, had lived. Um, that he probably would have had to come to grips with um, the challenges that many northern workers uh, in laboring positions were were encountering in in rising in this society. And I think that you know I, I guess you know one of the main arguments in my book is the Civil War shows uh, uh, reveals those challenges. So maybe not in the 1850s. But starting in the war years, um, I think that's what sets my book apart, is that I'm examining how, how, mm-hmm. um, how free labor was, um, uh, as an ideology, was um, certainly widespread, but maybe not describing reality as it had done before. I, I, I want to push back, though, on the idea of independence from the market, um, I have to admit, I don't see as much of that in in Lincoln's writings. That sounds very Jeffersonian, certainly, the idea of the the independent yeoman farmer. But that that had already gone away. I mean, the market revolution that historians talk about takes place much earlier in the 19th century. And the free labor ideology accommodates that and says, well, you don't have to be an independent farmer. You can also be a a business owner. Yes, now you have customers, you're in the market, but you're still – you're you're still achieving what the free labor ideology wants you to achieve. You can be a farmer for the market or a business owner. Uh, I, I, I'm not sure that, that yeah, dis- think, the discovery well, that think, they're dependent is, to, is a big deal. I can, yeah, I can point to speeches he made in Cincinnati, and then um, during uh, in, in the in 1859, certainly Milwaukee in '59 at the at the uh, Agricultural Society, mm-hmm. um, and in 1860, during, during the election campaign in New Haven um, and elsewhere, um, where he is, um, he's talking about this three-step process, that it's, it's, right. it's, it's not moving from um, being a wage earner to, uh, to someone with capital. There's this middle space where he says that you can be independent of both other people's capital and other people's labor. Um, you know, and I guess, you know, you as a Lincoln scholar, I'll defer to you. I mean, I think that whether he believed that or not may be another story. And he may have been um, talking about a particular, um, particular types of, of independence, maybe on farms as opposed to urban businesses. Now, let me push on another front here. And this, uh, I mean, this book really did intrigue me and kept, kept me thinking the whole time. Uh, the, if we take that point as, as granted that the Civil War exposes that free labor is not going to make you independent of the market, no matter how hard and how smart you are, you're still going to be dependent on others and you may, you may get screwed. You, you just don't know what's going to happen. Um, it, you, you use the subtitle, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor, 
you know, fraud is a very intentional word. Um, it implies moral turpitude that that somebody is defrauding someone. Um, who's who's doing this? Yeah, um, uh, that's true. That's true, and I think that um, uh, we can see this. Um, uh, in many cases within the army itself, that soldiers complain, uh, having been recruited, um, uh, maybe um, certainly a mix of motivations uh, that would include uh, cause, comrades, and country, um, but mm-hmm. also economic motivations, um, thinking mm-hmm. about uh, bounty payments, which at the beginning of the war were um, Small. There were a hundred dollar uh, federal bounties uh, after May of 1861, um, and increasing over the course of the war. And of course, payments uh, that states offered to um, to soldiers uh, to uh, for the upkeep of their families while they were off fighting. Um, sometimes those those payments um, were not um, made in a very um, uh, 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 quick way. Um, and in fact, you know, some uh, some soldiers went without their pay uh, for uh, four or six months when the when the contract uh, states that they would be paid every other month. Um, so many soldiers understand what their government and what their the federal and state governments are doing is um, uh, uh, you know exists within the realm of moral turpitude. Um, uh, certainly, uh, officers who um, uh, employed um, formerly enslaved servants who were fugitives from slavery uh, in camps or um, uh, black soldiers who later in the war were um, impressed into the army, uh, as I talk about um, in the Department of Virginia and North Carolina. Um, There was uh, a lot of talk about the unfairness of some of these practices, even as the army and the the officers who um, um, enlisted these soldiers would say, well, we're not really impressing you, even though we, we have a bayonet at your back. Um, this is this is your obligation uh, to to the state uh, in a place like Virginia, where Benjamin Butler has stipulated um, that no uh, that no African American man can make more money in wages uh, than what an African American soldier can make. That is ten dollars a month. Um, so there are, there are lots of ways uh, during the war uh, in which. Um, uh, um, working people uh, interpret what's happening to them uh, in the army, and and I can talk at length at, at home too, and in in, um, in northern uh, households that they're they're understanding that as as um, as being fraudulent. The uh, and you give a lot of examples of that. We started in the first segment talking uh, about the substitute brokers who are supplying men for the army and taking a cut or simply stealing the the money and uh right you talk about uh, shoddy the 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 clothing being sold to the army early on that's uh inferior in quality and again profiteering i mean it's an interesting point you raised that that the free labor economy acknowledges uh you have to make money that that's how capitalism works during wartime, there's that fine line. If you're making too much money, you're a profiteer taking advantage of the situation. Sure. But if sure. you don't make any money at all, you, you can't keep your business. We're going to take another short break, come back and resume talking about Men is Cheap, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor and Civil War America. The author Brian P. Losky, our guest tonight. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention. If you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Brian P. Ben is cheap. Closing Civil War America. We've been talking about this really complex and interesting concept of the free labor economy in the North, uh, starting to expose. fraud or at least contradiction in in its nature as the war goes on. Uh, Brian, one of the interesting things you do in this book is you use a number of individuals that we learn a great deal about, uh, not people that any of us have heard of before either, that, that people you've uncovered, uh, of whom I would say Thomas Webster, if there's a protagonist in the book, uh, it, it must be him. He just keeps showing up in in one form or another. Uh, how did you discover Thomas Webster? Thomas Webster uh, was a, um, a, a, a Republican operative, I guess it's fair to say, um, mm-hmm. never, never elected to office, um, but, a, but a party man, uh, at least uh, you know, by, by the, the middle and late 1850s. Um, and he... Um, I, I uncovered him in the uh, the files uh, that the Historical Society of Pennsylvania has uh, has uh, has archived on uh, the enlistment of African American men 
uh, into the Union Army, um, and and he led um, a recruiting uh, organization there uh, for that purpose. Uh, be- but before that, he had been uh, the chairman of the uh, Citizens Bounty Fund uh, to recruit white Philadelphians uh, uh, by 1862 um, by paying them a local city bounty. Um, before that, um, and before the war, and these, the reason he's doing these jobs during the war is because, uh, his business, um, had, uh, had been destroyed by the war, by secession in the war. He was a, um, a tobacco, uh, wholesaler, uh, in Philadelphia. And so he dealt directly with, uh, t- tobacco manufacturing firms in, in Richmond and, uh, uh other sites, uh, along the James River. And the funny thing about Thomas Webster was uh, that he was also opposed to slavery. And I've found several examples of um, uh, uh, Webster um, not only was a tobacco merchant, he was a, um, an agent for uh, a, a pr- two prominent shipping firms in, in, uh, that, that operated between Philadelphia and other cities. And what I found in the writings of William Still, who was a prominent uh, African-American abolitionist in Philadelphia, was that uh, several fugitive slaves um, boarded ships um, uh, in their escape from Virginia to Philadelphia um, that were ships uh, in the lines that Webster was an agent for. Um, And so uh, Webster, in some way, uh, assisted uh, at least, or at least his, his companies unwittingly assisted uh, fugitive slaves uh, in in coming north, uh, and you can imagine that sort of um, that sort of political stance uh, didn't uh, didn't uh, sit well with with um, uh, slaveholding uh, tobacco uh, uh, firms in Richmond. It really cut into his business into the 1850s, and by 1860, he's looking for a patronage job uh, from politicians like John Sherman. Um, and uh, during the war, he becomes a prominent, uh, prominent recruiter, um, but he never kind of uh, lets go of, of his ambition of, of trying to make this war uh, work for him. And by the end of the war, he's trying to get um, uh, access, a pass from Benjamin Butler to accompany his army, which uh, Webster hopes will be the first to enter uh, enter Richmond when is when is taken, so he can he can um, uh, collect debts that were owed to him and never paid back to him, um, and and kind of get in on the ground floor of a new tobacco economy in the city. So he's he's uh, a politician, a low level politician. He's tangentially involved with the Underground Railroad with the pre war tobacco economy. Uh, he's a recruiter, bounty agent, but he's also then becomes a recruiter of USCT, uh, the right. collar troops. Then he's uh, uh, and you you stress when he's recruiting the the, the United States collar troops, he does this with uh, traditional commercial methods, advertising uh, uh, bounties that others are offering. But he, he he goes about it honestly. In other words, he's not a uh, it's not an example of an intelligence office guy. In, in, indeed. And so um, it's, it's, I want readers to understand that, um, the, the, that Webster um, does, at every step of the way, he's, um, he's uh, very clearly um, trying to remain on the right side 
not only of the law, but of public opinion. Um, but he, in so many of so many of his dealings, he 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 does so with self interest in mind. I mean, before uh, before the war, uh, records show that he didn't uh, he didn't pay debts to some uh, to, uh, Richmond tobacco firms that he owed money to, and so credit reporters kind of flagged him as a credit risk. Um, he um, so in, in in many ways he was uh, not only um, on the uh, on the opposite side ideologically from uh, these tobacco merchants in Virginia, but on the on the other side of, of the court system from them, um, he he uh, was involved in um, in making sure soldiers were clothed, and he became a commissary for the state of Pennsylvania, and he was asked. Uh, to um, to judge the merits of goods that were being sent to soldiers by uh, by state contractors, and so he was uh, kind of put himself in a role to police other people's fraud. Um, his pitch for uh, for African American soldiers, I think, was uh, done in some ways from uh, from the uh, from the goodness of his heart. I mean, he wanted um, he wanted uh, the Union to win the war, and he and Lincoln and others knew that um, adding African-American men to the military was a, a pretty a crucial addition of manpower. Um, and uh, he did so um, through a, a culture of, of, of advertising and, and um, kind of uh, fanfare, um, that spoke to the the culture of, of of speculation of commercial speculation of the time. Um, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but I think in the end, when he um, it becomes very clear that he's trying to use his recruiting efforts um, to get ahead economically. I think he and these labor brokers, um, while he's maybe not committing fraud, he's he's more like them than unlike them. Now, if, if there's a, a flip side to. Thomas Webster, it's John Nelson, who again shows up. Uh, these guys are like Zelig, like they just keep showing up in every frame of the Civil War. Uh, Nelson right. is is recruiting, he's involved in the recruiting war between uh, uh, Ben Butler and, and Governor Andrews in Massachusetts. He's involved in uh, recruiting black troops around New Orleans. Uh, but he's, he's not only looking out for number one at every opportunity, but he's he has no compunction about lying and cheating, and uh, un- unlike uh, Webster, he's he's just a bad guy. <laughs> there's 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 not much good to say about John Nelson. He uh, he's a, certainly an interesting character, and that's why he looms so uh, so large in the book. Um, but he is um, oh uh, kind of uh, I think with uh, at, at first in New England with with Butler's. Uh, um, uh, kind of imprimatur. He's he's kind of doing Butler's business for him in his conflict mm-hmm. with Andrew. He's recruiting um, Massachusetts soldiers to fill up a Connecticut regiment, and it's never clear uh, to the soldiers um, from the sources that I have which state um, is going to um, uh, pay uh, um, the the charitable payments to their families. Uh, who's uh, who's owing them a bounty? Um, so I, I think uh, many of those soldiers go off to the war um, kind of pawns in a, in a broader conflict between Butler and Andrew that, that Nelson is such an important part of. Uh, but Nelson accompanies uh, uh, Butler's men to the Gulf. Uh, and in the Mississippi Valley, uh, sh- surely Nelson uh, speculated in cotton and a variety of other things uh, that he shouldn't have been doing. Let me ask a, a 
question. And there, there are so many things in this book we've not touched on. The whole issue of uh, domestic help and the domestic uh, economy of sure. households in the North is an issue we, we won't have time to talk about tonight. Um, it, in, at one point, uh, you, I'll, I'll quote a sentence, competing and succeeding in the wage labor economy meant taking advantage of people when you could. Uh, sometimes you describe people hiring others, and other times you use the, the verb exploiting. Is it possible to hire wage laborers without exploiting them? Can there be a, a legitimate uh, employment relationship that isn't exploitative? I grant your point. Um, uh, surely that, that, um, that may have happened in, in many different uh, uh, venues, and certainly workers aren't always feeling like they're exploited. I, I think that that's also important to, to, uh, to, to state again, and I, I don't want readers to get the wrong uh, impression. Certainly uh, most and, and, and I think this is true if you look at, at soldiers in the Army, um, even though they had their complaints about fraud, uh, they still believed in the cause, uh, and they, mm-hmm. still, they still believed in free labor, and that, that it, would cu- it would work for them eventually. But those same people very often talk about um, uh, how to get ahead uh, through employing other people. So uh, there's a character in my book named uh, Henry Walker, who's a soldier mm-hmm. from Oneida County, New York, um, who believes uh, very, uh, very clearly in the, the promise of wage labor for him, even though his family is struggling uh, to make ends meet during the war. Um, but what I think is really the revealing moment for him, even as he says, um, you know, by the spring of 1863, I'm in favor of emancipation, too. He looks at, um, uh, he, he's, he's stationed as a guard on a, a, a formerly secessionist planter who has decided to take the loyalty oath and watching um, uh, uh, black women work in his field, women who had been slaves, and he describes them in a letter um, uh, to his wife uh, as being so black and shiny, uh, don't you wish I could send one uh, home to work for you? Uh, so that does tie in this, this angle of, of thinking about ways, soldiers thinking about ways in which they can help their, their wives back home um, uh, become more respectable in society by, by not having to do labor themselves. That is, to have other people um, who are sweating in farm fields do that labor for them. So there, I, 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 I don't mean to say that, that all workers are exploited, but I do have so much evidence that, that I talk about in this book about um, about um, soldiers and officers and others, um, civilians, hoping they could get access to workers um, and to use them uh, for um, for their own um, their own rise in the world. And that uh, uh, Brewster, Charles Brewster, is another one that you describe who is very interesting. Anti-slavery, uh, his regiment is anti-slavery, yet they have to. Uh, eventually uh, release the enslaved refugee formerly enslaved refugees that they're holding uh, well there's there's just uh, there's a great deal here it's it's a uh, uh, a complex look at a complex situation and uh, one that as I said certainly had me thinking a great deal throughout the the week as I was reading it 
Let me ask you, is this part of a larger uh, research arc you mentioned being about 19th century clerks before this? Where are you going next? My next project goes back to the antebellum period. I'm, I'm going to be studying a, uh, a slave trader um, who operated uh, along the Texas coast between Texas and Cuba, who then defrauds his slave trading partners in Texas um, by, by forging a contract. He gets caught for that and then spends the rest of, uh, the rest of his life um, trying to convince abolitionists to fund his efforts to go to England and stop a, a diplomatic um, sort of uh, relationship to develop between Britain and Texas. Um, so he plays both sides of the slavery question, and I, I find that very interesting as uh, republics like Texas are trying to establish uh, their sovereignty um, in, in, in an Atlantic world uh, in which the, the biggest, the most powerful player is still the anti-slavery state of, of, of Great Britain. Wow, well, that, that sounds interesting. The uh, as I was reading this, I was thinking what an interesting approach that you found these characters like uh, Webster and Brewster and, and Walker and others uh, who make this. It's not like an economic history with charts and, and uh, uh, graphs and statistics. It's an argument uh, through these human examples that is uh, you know, supported, obviously richly cited, but. Uh, but really comes to life with these individuals that you're talking about. Well, it, uh, listeners, there is much more in this. It's not a long book, but there's there's a great deal here. Uh, the title of the book is Men is Cheap, Exposing the Frauds of Free Labor in Civil War America. The author, our guest tonight, Brian P. Lusky. Uh, Brian, thank you so much for being on the show. Please give my best to Ashley, and uh, everybody stay safe where you are. All right, Jerry, you too. Thank you very much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. (laughs) 